The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. G'day, g'day, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid and you're listening to the All Australian Music Stories. This episode is on one of the most important and influential musicians to ever step onto a stage in Australia, Cole Joy. From the very beginning of rock and roll in this country, Cole Joy and the Joy Boys were at the forefront of this new style of music, sending the Australian teenagers crazy and their parents wild with rage. Cole Joy and the Joy Boys created history, being the first Australian group to claim a number one record on the charts. With over 50 singles, 40 albums and 30 EPs, the volume of music released by Cole is just simply staggering. Aside from his own amazing career, he also was the first person to discover the Bee Gees. I mean, the first person to discover the Bee Gees. He was the first person to record them, he brought them to Sydney, he championed them to festival records, he championed them when nobody else would, and they became the Bee Gees. That's just one part of the Cole Joy story. I've broken this episode into two parts, and I've still got so many more questions I could ask him, so hopefully down the track there'll be an episode three. It was an honour to speak to Cole, and I hope I just didn't come across as some insane fanboy. I was sitting there, and I was in awe. I'm talking to Cole Joy, as I said, to me and to the history books, one of the most important people in Australian music history. I hope you enjoy listening to the career of Cole Joy and the Joy Boys. Bye 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 my baby goodbye I gotta get a gone bye bye my baby goodbye See you in the morning at a break of day Just a little kiss and I'll be on my way Bye 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 baby Oh, 
Today I'm talking with the absolute legend of Australian rock and roll, Cole Joy. Great to meet you, Cole, and thanks for sitting down and having a chat. Ah, uh, pleasure, Sheldon. Sheldon's hard to say yeah, first up, isn't it? it is, it is. It's a pleasure, Sheldon. Good to be along. Thanks, mate. You grew up in the Sydney suburb of East Hills when you left school and you started work for a jeweller. It's a bit different to the world of rock and roll. Well, it was, but we were always um, a musical kind of family. I learned to play piano from a a woman called Mrs. Flowers. Mrs. Flowers taught Sunday school down the end of the the street from us and um, um, she was a big influence on our lives with our, with a Sunday school and plus she taught piano. So for sixpence we were able to do piano lessons, sixpence my brother and I. And, um, and my father inherited, well he didn't inherit, he got a pianola and in those days nobody had a pianola they couldn't afford anything um, but he did a, a favor for a, a fella that he'd never known and um, and the, the fella came some six or eight weeks later and said thanks for helping me out he said I was so sick I couldn't go and collect the doll and my wife they didn't want to give it to her and when you intervened and got that sorted out he said um, he said I'm a French polisher if there's anything I can ever do for you let me know I polished pianos for Mr. Steinberg. He brings them in and rents them for a pound a week. And my dad said, if you ever get a cheap one, he said, well, you know, let me know. So Clary, his name was. And Clary got this little um, little thing called an awl, A-W-L, which is like a little screwdriver with a point on the end, no, no sort of blade. And he stabbed away at the back of the piano. So Clary stabbed some holes in the back of the piano and said to Mr. Steinberg, Mr. Steinberg, this piano has got borers. He said, get it out of here. <laughs> so my father bought it for 30 dollars, uh, 30 pounds. I'm sorry. My father bought it for 30 shillings a month on the Never Never. And uh, so we had a, a pianola and, and everybody, we had 14 rolls. And a pianola is one you pump your feet on it. And, it, and so those 14 rolls, we had more parties at our place. And our first house was uh, 20 foot square. And um, in that house grew up Kevin, Colin and... No, Keith wasn't. Keith was born. Oh, yeah, he was there. And, um, but it had a mud floor, had two rooms on the side, which was the, our bedrooms. A mud floor. A mud floor, yeah. 
made of corrugated iron, had, had bag, hessian bag walls on the inside that my mother had uh, calcimined to keep the, 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 the damp out. And that was it. And everybody used to come to the Jacobsons for parties. And the lady around the street played good piano. So they, it was always on at the Jacobsons. So we were fortunate enough, we had a wireless. It wasn't much of a wireless, but it worked on three stations. And I used to always listen to the cowboy um, sessions in the morning. The hillbilly, we used to call it then. So like a Tex Morton type people? Yeah, yep. Tex Morton, Buddy Williams and, and, uh, and all those people, the early ones. Because the only music we got was mainly overseas music anyhow. Uh, and as we grew up, um, um, we lived at three houses in the one street. And my father built the last one. And um, we lived there till I was, I guess, 20, 21, um, in the same street up the other end of it. And, um, and of course, by then, as you said, I, I got a job at the jewellers. And uh, I finished school when I was 14 and a half. And, I went, and when they had the assembly and they called out everybody's names, and they didn't call out my name, and I thought, oh, oh smart young lad here. So they said, quick march, turn right. I went straight ahead down the street and went home. And I was home... The first on the Wednesday, on my Thursday, my father came home and we always had greyhounds and uh, my father trained greyhounds. He came home and said, what are you doing home? What are you, why aren't you at school? I said, I'm finished. He said, well, you're not laying around here. He said, get out and get a job. So Friday morning, I got the Herald and I walked into the wholesale jewellers and said, I've come for this job. So this is the only job I ever had. I was there for, I guess, for six years, um, six and a half years. And then um, I... We, by then, my brother, Kevin, had started a, a group, a three-piece group. The uh, KJ Quartet. Is yeah, it? well, yeah. it was a lead-up to the KJ Quartet, actually, because it was only a three-piece. Yes. Had Bogey on the drums, uh, and Jack was on the sax, the tenor, uh, alto sax. And so I joined, because I was learning guitar by then, and I never used to practice much on the things that he gave me, but I used to learn all the chords of the cowboy songs because there's only three or four chords in all of those. So I'd get in, uh, sit in the back in the corner. Um, eventually I got an amplifier made out of an old radio. The fellow around the corner fixed radios and so forth. So he made me an amplifier. Well, just on that, you had to, uh, apparently the story goes, you had to stand on a rubber mat oh, yeah. to save yourself getting electrocuted. <laughs> that was murder. Well, I don't know if it was in the amplifier, I think it was in my wiring of the guitar because my young brother Keith made my first electric guitar, made my first two electric guitars. And, of course, uh, every time my mouth touched the microphone, I'd get this terrible shock, a big blue flash, and my teeth would rattle and I'd miss a bar or two and then catch up. So the rubber mat, that, that got... <laughs> That overcome that. So I didn't, as soon as I got away from the microphone, if I was working the stage or anything like that, I was okay. But in the vicinity of the microphone, I always carried my rubber mat. So that was uh, uh, interesting growing up there. And uh, and as I said, we always had music in the house. My mother and father both loved to sing, loved the old songs. And, um, and could they hold a tune? Oh, yeah, both of them could, yes. Both of them could hold a tune. Uh, my father never, very seldom learned all the words of the pop songs, but he still loved to sing bits and pieces of them. But all the old songs, he knew all those words of that. And of course, they stood me in good stead over the years as well. And, uh, and it's quite amazing the, 
the mind can still recall a lot of those songs and bring back memories because the uh, songs are a big part of our the calendar of life. So when I hear a song and I think, yep, that's a mini song, that mini was my mum, George was my dad. So uh, they still stand up today. They're, they're a lot of fun. As you said, music takes you back to that very moment that you heard it or the, the time that that song had an influence on you. And it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's a great calendar because they say, what were you doing in, in uh, such and such a year? And you, you can't really put a finger straight on it. I mean, when you talk about uh, Bill Haley and so forth, the first time I heard Rock Around the Clock, I thought, wow. And I remember where I was. And I, because I was fortunate in as much as coming out of. Most of our songs were sort of bush ballads and told a story. And when um, rock and roll broke, it, of course, come out of America, and we had uh, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and, and Conway Twitty, and they were all country singers. So we had country music with a backbeat, which made it rock and roll, or we called it rock and roll, which was just a, an extension of, uh, of jive, which was an extension of jitterbug, which come out of the 1930s or late 20s with the uh, Charleston and all those dances they used to do. So a lot of those dance steps that they did sort of come on through Jive and Jitterbug. And then, of course, they found their way into rock and roll. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to be in, the, be in the right place at the right time, singing the music that I loved. So it's never really been a chore for me. I've, I've just made a living out of doing something that I loved, singing the kind of music that I that I thought always country music was honest music. Um, today I have a bit of a problem. I, I don't knock the new music, but I don't think it structures as well. I don't think the melodies are as strong and and uh, usually they're very much overproduced because when we did our recordings, we were in a studio that was, was probably uh, four metres by six metres so you couldn't fit the drums in there. You had to put them up outside in the alley and so forth. And you'd have to sing everything all up. They'd say, right, oh, here we go, counter in and away you go. Uh, later on, I've, I bought another uh, recorder called a, re uh, a roller recorder. And it ran at 15 inches a second, which was pretty flash. And uh, so we could record the backings and then we could overdub the vocals over. And I used to leave that at Festival Records. And that was used by O'Keefe and Dig Richards and Nolene Batley and... Yeah, anybody had come through. But when I went on tour, I, w I took it with me. And a couple of occasions was one in Moree, which I recorded Judy Stone with Jimmy Little playing. Uh, I think I played bass badly and Jimmy played guitar and Judy sang um, uh, My Shoes Keep Walking Back to You. And I took the thing down to festival. I said, you got to record this girl. She's, she's better than good. And, of course, Judy got onto festival records. And the same thing happened was um, at a party one night well, late, one early, one morning, actually, I heard these three kids sing, and I said, wow, I've never heard anything like that. The harmonies were the first would go to the third, and the, and the third would go to the fifth, and they just did it normally. And these were 12 and 14 years old. So I said, tomorrow, come down to where I'm working, because it was on the Gold Coast, and um, we'll record some songs. So we did four songs, and I've still got the tape somewhere. I'll find it one day, and... Uh, where he said, my name is Barry Gibb and I live at 26 Cambridge Avenue, Surface Paradise. And our first song is Let Me Love You. And they sang four songs. And I took those to festival and um, eventually got them a, a recording contract down here, put them on the, uh, the Chubby Checker show at the stadium. And um, of course, the whole family then moved down to Sydney. And that was Huey and Barbara. That was the mum and dad. 
and there was Barry, Robin and Morris and their, their sister, um, she was there, and little brother Andy. So uh, that was the BGs and they stayed at my house, I don't know, for 12 months or something before they uh, really got on their feet and our company managed them. They worked very hard, they do 16 shows a week. Uh, there wasn't, I didn't earn a lot of money in clubs in those days. Um, I think Cold Joy and the Joy Boys changed a lot of that because we ran our own dances. So if you wanted to book Cold Joy and the Joy Boys, you had to pay 100 quid then. Okay, yes. And everybody was, the top money was £25. And that was for uh, Larry Stella and and uh, Edwin Duff and, and people like that that were on top of the, Les Welch, they were on top of the tree at that time. Well, you guys were always a very business-minded, a great business acumen as a band. And when you guys were the KJ Quartet, there's a story going that you'd often bill yourselves as as two different bands on the one night. Uh, you'd be the uh, the KJ Quartet and then the Rhythm Rockers. <laughs> yeah. The Rhythm Rock, the Rhythm Rockets, it was. Rhythm, rhythm Rockets, Rockets okay, yeah. yeah. And I recall, because we did our first big show outside of Sydney at Tamworth Town Hall. And I remember we had 100 and, uh, 120 or 150 people. And, and I mentioned to the fellow in charge of the council, I said, we didn't get any people. He said... You're kidding? He said, this is good. He said, last week um, the show came through, they got five. <laughs> I said, oh, made me feel a bit better. But what we'd do there, we'd, we'd play the first half and we'd sing all the Nat King Coles and the Perry Como songs and Johnny Ray songs and so forth that were ilking around at the As time. the KJ Quartet? Yes. Yes. Oh, yep. it was a quintet then. Oh, the quintet, okay. Yeah, yes. it was a KJ yep. quintet then. And then um, um, later on, uh, I was working still at the Jewelers and a young fella came in because I got I got a step up in the ranks and I was able to go and serve at the counter and also go and go to the smaller jewellers and, and sell them product. So we got this new bloke in called Dave Bridge and he was a lot younger but he was, he was learning guitar and he played for me one day and he was a good player. He learned from the same bloke as me but I was never a good player. I was more of a rhythm guitar player, but Dave could play lead, so I uh, talked him into joining the Joy Boys, and so there, there was Kevin on piano, um, me up front singing, John Bogie on drums. Uh, by then, my younger brother Keith had joined us, and he made his first electric bass, and he played on, uh, I think, I don't know if he played on, yeah, he played on, on Bye Bye Baby, and he played on Clementine and those, because our first two records were... Uh, extended plays. One we recorded at a place called Radio House in George Street with an old bloke called Rex Shaw and it was a disused theatre. A beautiful old theatre but of course it's gone the way of the way. So the second one we recorded at Paddington Police Boys Club where we took over the dance from Johnny O'Keefe. Now in those days we didn't know anything about bipolar. We just thought he'd, he was, he'd gone off his head again and you'd turn and walk away. <laughs> And because uh, with bipolar, it's, a, it's an awful thing, especially when, uh, I don't know if it was not diagnosed or we just weren't, didn't learn about it. And, of course, John had turned up at the dance late and, uh, um, and then he'd want extra money and uh, he'd put on a, a tantrum. And, of course, the old fella, Joe Reed, that ran at the sergeant, his second in charge was a fella called Ray Leary. He was a senior constable. He said, why don't you get this Cole Joy bloke? He does dances around the place and, and everybody's talking about him because we ran our own dances. And so they, we, we took over from O'Keefe 
uh, he fired John, which John was later on in life when we um, we spent some time together and we had a lot of fun together and we, we'd laugh about these times. Uh, but John was being first, uh, having early records, um, he jealously guarded his position. He didn't want anybody to get up near him and of every opportunity he'd knock you down. But we really didn't care. We just thought we were better anyway. We yes. thought our band was better and we sang better songs and so forth. And uh, it wasn't until, as I said later on in life, when uh, John was on his medication and that we had a lot of good times and a lot of fun together. AJ Quartet, you guys are at the, uh, the Maruba Junction Hotel and you've got a residency there. And a friend of yours, Fiona McCullum, there's a big promoter of the time, Bill McCall. Fiona McCullum asked Bill McCall to come and have a look at you guys. Yeah, right. He's, yep. he's organising a, a, a massive concert, the, uh, the first time jazz and rock and roll fu- is fused in, in the one big concert, and it's called the Jazzarama at the, uh, the Manly Embassy Theatre. Yeah. And uh, Bill McCall comes and looks at you guys and decides he's going to put you on the bill. So that's... All of a sudden, you guys are, are headed to the big time. You've gone from the Maruba Junction Hotel to to being on a, a bill with people such as, um, as you mentioned, Les Welsh, the Ray Price Trio, um, and Johnny O'Keefe and the DJs were on that also. Um, Jimmy Hannon was also on, on that bill. And Cole Joy and the Joy Boys, uh, well, KJ, the KJ Quintet is on the bill. You guys decide that... The name doesn't. The name's not what's going to take you to the top of rock and roll. So you, you're trying to come up with different names, and you're thinking Cole J, Cole J and the Playmates, Cole J and the Cole J and the Playboys. You're, you're trying to come up. And Fiona McCallum, who's a, who's a clairvoyant, says to you, "How about Cole Joy and the Joy Boys?" And you guys jump at it. Couple of week, couple of days later, you guys get itchy feet and go, "Hang on, no, that's not what we're going to call ourselves." And you ring Bill McCall, who says, bad luck, boys, the posters are getting printed. So that's how Cole Joy and the Joy Boys came into, came into being. That's all true. Um, uh, we did the Maroubra Junction Hotel. There was, the compare was a, a young bloke called Billy Legate, and he, he used to go on stage as the Little Digger. And he used to wear a slouse hat on stage and do his, his uh, introductions and so forth. And he had a friend called Nancy Little. And uh, so he brought Nancy Little along, who later became Fiona McCullum. She changed her name. Even then, she came out with some weird and wonderful things. And Steve brought uh, Bill McCall. And we thought it was going to be fantastic. But Bill worked us like slaves. We were the... We were singing on street corners, in theatre foyers, on the backs of trucks, anything to promote this show. So we did all that work. But um, we played the Manly Embassy. And then later on from that, we played uh, for the Australian Rock and Roll Championship, which was at the Capitol Theatre. And it was a Tommy Steele story was the main the- uh, main show. There was another one on before it. And in the break, we'd play for the Rock and Roll Championship. And from then on, it went to the 1957 Rock and Roll Ball at the Town Hall, once again with Bill McColl. There was Johnny O'Keefe and the DJs, Johnny Reb and the Rebels, Alan Dale and the House Rockets, and Coljoy and the Joy Boys. And, um, and that's when Ken Taylor offered us a contract with Festival Records on that particular time. That was the time where we asked Bill for some money 
and uh, <laughs> well, it was become an altercation because things it, changed quickly. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So that was our parting of the ways. So from then on, we decided we'd run our own things, and we we'd uh, I'd run down to a place called Cotty's and buy a gallon jar of uh, cordial, and we had a tin dish in the back of the the dance halls. And I'd fill it up with water and whack in my gallon of cotties and we'd sell it for sixpence a glass. My brother would sell tickets on the door. And then uh, when we were ready to start, we'd just close the door and lock it. Once you're in, you're in. And um, and we'd just play. If there was a fight, we'd stop, in, put down instruments and go and sort that out. And then we'd come back and start off again. Jump back up on stage uh, and the show back continues. Jump back up on stage again. But later on, of course, we were, we got uh, to an extent where we could employ what we call bouncers, and we used to employ uh, wrestlers from the wrestling circuit because they weren't getting much money either. So they were glad for a, a night's work. And uh, went to Bankstown Capital, I think, where we'd have 1,500 people in there. And it was one of the biggest dancers in the Sydney circuit was the, oh, the yeah, Bankstown it was, Capital. It was a big one. We had to have a, a barb- an enclosure built out the side of the... Bankstown Capital, and this was to fit in the people that couldn't fit in the dance hall, or if they wanted, if they wanted to go out for a smoke, they'd go out in the outside part. But it was a very successful dance for us for a long time, and we used to donate weekly to the Bankstown Hospital uh, from that dance, as we did to the surf club when we ran the dance down there on a Sunday night at, at Bronte. So uh, now the industry's been good to us, and I hope that we've put something back into it. When you started, the name changed the Cold Joy and the Joey Boys. It didn't go quite as planned as, as you guys had hoped because you uh, the posters come out for the Jazzarama and all of a sudden, <laughs> instead of having uh, Cold Joy, it's double O-L, Ool yeah. Joy. Ool, yeah. I wish it was a bit later when we were like ABBA, we could have been Swedish. <laughs> Ool, Ool Joy. And it was, we, we were just uh, distraught and... Uh, I remember we had a couple of razor blades and, and even on the little hand flies, we tried to scratch out a bit of the O so it looked like a C. But after you've done a hundred of those, you go in the thumbs and we thought, well, that's it, we're going to be ill. <laughs> so, uh, but um, we never did get round to change at all. We just sort of grew into it and uh, and it's certainly been good to us. But playing in that on the, on the Jazzarama bill... Must have uh, been a, uh, a an amazing feeling to all of a sudden go from Maroubra to that to that gig. You guys are now playing with the cream of Australian musicians. Obviously, you would have been nervous for that gig, but did you feel like you belonged? You know, we never really. We I think it's in your upbringing, those early years. We never felt out of place with anybody. We we just just went and did what we liked doing and did it. Uh, Probably I could have done better. I wouldn't say that I've always done the best I could do, but once you're on stage, you've got to do whatever you do. And um, I can remember being nervous on some shows. I remember the Ricky Nelson show where I fell up the steps and cut my eye on my guitar. And and, uh, and with with those, you'd be halfway through the first song, still not knowing, you know, where the words are just coming out. So you said you tripped on the stairs and cut yourself so you are bleeding up on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wipe, wipe it on your sleeve and keep going. Uh, but that was at a good time for us because we had, we'd had Bye Bye Baby and Oh Yeah, Aha uh-huh and Clementine. And, but we come out then with Yes, Sir, That's My Baby. And um, that was, once again, one of the first times we could sing to the backtrack. Um, of course, Lee Gordon rang and said, Listen, uh, 
Ricky's new record is Yes, So That's My Baby. And we were charted with ours here. And I mean, as I said, the Yanks jump on a lot of things. They keep their eye on what's happening everywhere. Uh, he said, can you hold up? Uh, you can't sing that. Rick's going to sing it. And I said, oh, okay. So when Rick got off the plane, we went over to him and said, uh, welcome to Australia and so forth. We're on the show with him. And you've got a new record. Yes, so that's my baby. Are you going to sing it? And he said, no, no, no. I've got better songs than that. And I said, well, do you mind if we sing it? And he said, no, no, you go ahead. He was, he was a nice, humble boy, Rick. And, of course, we had these songs and we'd finish up with, and they'd all been hit for us, and we'd finish up with this, That's My Baby. And then, of course, it would bring the house down and we'd get halfway off the stage and then we'd run back and do a, a reprise, go back into the middle eight and do that. And, of course, the show was certainly good for us. And, well... When I was, even through the latter days in uh, working clubs and venues where uh, Oh Yeah, Aha uh-huh, and Clementine and Yes, So That's My Baby and Bye Bye Baby all, all got a hiding. Well, you mentioned that uh, at the Pennington Police Boys, Ken Taylor from Festival Records, the A&R manager, spots you guys and says, yep, these, these, are, these are the boys I'm going to sign. So he signs you to Festival Records and you, your first single, as you said, you had, had a couple of EPs came out, but your first two singles with 16 candles. And the flip side was a cover of the uh, the Lloyd Price song, Stagger Lee. The night was clear and the moon was yellow And the leaves came tumbling down I was standing on the corner when I heard my it was a very rudimentary song, but it was a, uh, it was your start. It was your, you know, you had better things to come, but you, you had your own record. Yeah, we had our own record. And early in the piece, Festival didn't have a recording company. That was started with Les Welch. He was the A&R manager. The only big record company was EMI, and they had Slim Dusty and Smokey Dawson and a whole bunch of people like that on. So when we cut um, 16 Candles and Stag Lee, <laughs> I listened to it now, and it was pretty rugged. It went like a gliding grand piano. It didn't sell any records. I think the only one ever played it once was John Laws. And, um, um, and after that, we, and we only got that because I said, we, we can't make the charts with extended plays because the radio doesn't play them. Uh, so that's hence how that record come up. And the second one I had, oh, no, I Miss You So was on our one of our first um, EPs, I think the first one. And I hadn't heard of that. I just picked it out of a bunch of records. I'd never heard it before. And I'd never heard it again until I found Willie Nelson has recorded it uh, a few years back. I Miss You So, a good old song. 
so that was that. We were trying for a second single, and we're in the studio over there, the little studio at Festival Records with our four four microphones and our RCA console, which were oh no, it was an AWA console. It only had four faders on it. Anyhow, no no EQ. You got what you got. In previous episodes of this podcast, I've spoken to to different people of that of that era, and they they mentioned the recording genius of Robert Iredale. Was he was he part of your sessions? Yeah, Robert Robert was um, always part of. But I used to do a lot of work behind the scenes with Robert. I'd come up with these crazy ideas and say, because um, he he wasn't a technical genius, but he knew enough about. I said, well, we've got four microphones and there are only faders, there are only volumes on each one. Why don't we make up another four and we go out of this four into that and let one of those control and so we can have seven microphones? And he said, hmm, I think that would work. And, and he did. And we had seven mic. We could run seven mics. We were flash. And then later on, um, I played a big show with uh, Dwayne Eddy. And Dwayne had a Fender, a Bassman, and a Gibson amplifier, and they were they were U Butte amplifiers. So I offered him a dollar twenty for them, and he sold them to us. But on the Fender amp, it had a bass and a treble and a presence and a, a, mid, a middle. So uh, I pulled the inside out of that front end, and we used to use that then at festival for mastering. And so I worked quite a bit with Robert, and uh, had a quite bit, quite a bit to do with him over the years behind the scenes that nobody knows. And um, uh, but he he had a good ear. He had a good ear. As O'Keefe had a good ear for a song, songs that he thought would suit him. Uh, so Robert was a yes, he was the engineer there for many years. As as a producer, um, they had a fellow called Hal Saunders. And Hal was 104 then, I think, and uh, he gave us sleep quite a bit. And uh, he, was, he was quite religious, Hal. And, uh, and of course, it, it was hard to be <laughs> religious when you're with the Joy Boys in that same extent. If they, anything went wrong, they'd all come back over the microphones and Hal would try to cover his ears and so forth. Oh, they're swearing again, Kevin, they're swearing. But... Um, uh, we did a lot of work there, and uh, and I, I I tune into an American station every now and again, and I hear a lot of their early work, and ours was up to it. And uh, if it didn't have the quality, it certainly had the quantity. Well, I think the the major difference was the uh, the recording equipment that the Yanks had compared to what we had in Australia. You guys were just it was primitive, it was rudimentary, and oh yes. And um, one of the um, – we'll get on to your, your first big hit in a moment, um, Bye Bye Baby, but what happened um, – you recorded Bye Bye Baby, you found a, a heap of songs – well, you've been given a heap of demo discs by um, 2GB disc jockey John Burles, and, and amongst that was Bye Bye Baby. But So you recorded that song at festival, but in the meantime, you hadn't been on the, any of the big show uh, appearances. You, you were That was the big show, obviously, to, to get on the Lee Gordon Big Shows – and uh, you're in Ken Taylor's office, and you're um, you're letting him know in uncertain terms how disappointed you guys are that you aren't on the big show, and and coincidences and and serendipitous moments happen in life, and the phone rings, Ken Taylor answers it. On the other end is Lee Gordon offering you a show on the Johnny Cash extravaganza. That must have been a, an amazing moment. It it reads like a movie setup. It did it did move like it did sound like that because the phone was a wall phone, a pay phone on the outside. I mean, they had phones in their offices, but 
This was a payphone on the wall at the top of the stairs where you came up the festival, which is, I think it was an old tenement house because it had those real, not very wide stairs, and they were quite tight. They went, went up about six steps and did a right angle. And, but at the top of that, on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side as you get up the top, was the payphone. And we were in there talking about this, and, and I remember Taylor said, oh, he'll, he'll come around, he'll have to come around, he'll have to come around because you guys are doing good and your dances and so forth. The phone started. Well, it rang and it rang and it rang, and... Th- Nobody else was in the office because it was on a Saturday. And and um, finally, uh, Taylor got up and walked out and answered the phone. He came back to me and he said, Lee Gordon's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> so I go out and he said, Lee Gordon. I said, yes, Mr. Gordon. He said, do you dig this guy Cash? And I said, John Cash? Yeah, we know all these songs. He said, he said, can you play his music? I said, yeah, we can play his music. And he said, how much do you want? And I said, well, I don't know. Wait till I get my manager. He said, you got a manager? <laughs> <laughs> it just come off the top of my head because then I put my brother Kevin on. And um, I think we quoted 2,000 pounds for that show. So we were up and running. And we played that show. It opened in Melbourne. And uh, I was on first and I had four songs to sing. I went on and sang my four songs and I came off and we, we did all right. And and, uh, and Lee Gordon was in the wings. He said, get back on. The, the plane hasn't landed yet. This was all the American stars on their aeroplane. So I went back on and I sang another four or five songs and come off. He said, it still ain't here. And I walk on and I say, well, you got me. You got me again. And, of course, when you were playing these dances three or four times a week, we knew every song in the book anyhow, and so we knew not to go near the stars' songs. And um, so we sang everybody else's songs because we only had one or two of our own. And eventually, of course, the, the plane landed and they rushed them in. And the first guy on stage was Gene Vincent, and he had his leg in plaster. And he clumped on there and he said, what do you guys know? We said, you call it, we know it. And he, so he sang, and he, we said, what about something? He said, no, no, I don't leave. I had, I had to read that off a piece of paper. And uh, so we went through that. And then Bobby Day, of course, was on it. And uh, probably one of the best workers at the time I'd seen to that stage because he was kind of liquid on stage. He moved well and everything like that. And uh, and he had all the moves that uh, all the fellas of his ilk um, from that side, like Little Richard was more of a gospel singer, but a hell of a player and a hell of a rock and roll singer. And uh, But they had their kind of music, which was more bluesy and so forth. And, of course, on with Johnny Cash, John had come on and uh, pushed his dollar bill under the string, so he got the <laughs> on it there. And so the Tennessee Two, they and um, Johnny would do their things, but the Joy Boys backed the rest of the show, and that was the first one in, uh, in Melbourne. So it was a, a baptism of fire for us because I'd never seen 7,000 people before. And this is a packed festival hall waiting to see the big stars yeah, in the day. Yeah, and on comes me, and on, on comes me, and on comes me. <laughs> but you saved a riot. There would have been a riot. If, if, if you had gone off and it was an empty stage there for another hour, it would have been a riot. So, yeah, uh, well, that's, it happened again another time when uh, Lloyd Price was on, and Lloyd had a heavy night out with uh, um, O'Keefe and, and a bunch of people. And, uh, of course, he went on stage and he said, where were you on our wedding day? And then he fell over. <laughs> and he, <laughs> they all rushed and uh, put him in the ambulance and took him away. And, uh, and Conway Twitty had to go back on again. 
Twitty went back on at that stage to save the night. But that was a um, a memorable night because the the stage in the in, was in the middle of the um, Rustcutters Bay Stadium, and it would turn three times one way, and then three times the other. Three times one way, three times the other. Go back and forwards. And of course, you never you couldn't work that part of the audience. You could only work it as it came around. So it wasn't the best setup in the world, but it was the only setup we had, 12,000 people. Well, the revolving stage, and uh, Lucky Star called it the revolting stage. Yeah, I know. Well, this was a revolting stage this night because it went three times this way, once this way, three times again, twice that way, because all the leads used to come up through a hole in the middle. And it wasn't a real big hole, and it had all our power leads come through that. Well, each time we got to crunch them up. Well, in the end, <laughs> it was a big puff of smoke <laughs> and everything went off. So they ran one extension lead on stage at, uh, with some double adapters, a plug-in of the few amplifiers that the Twitty used and so forth because he only had Big Joe on uh, on guitar and, uh, and Blackie on bass and himself and um, I don't know if he has. I don't think he had a keyboard, but um, that that was another night that he had to go back on. So uh, I, I sort of my mind took me back to Melbourne on the initial one that we had to do. Well, prior to that Melbourne show, you guys had recorded Bye Bye Baby. You'd found the uh, the demo disc uh, amongst a pile of demos, and um, you recorded this song. And uh, festival decided to rush release the, uh, the the single and get it out there. This is your first number one, and it's not only your first number one; it's the first Australian song to ever reach number one. That's just amazing, Cole. Well, we were trying to record a single, and Robert Idell and I had a cold, and Robert said, "Come on, get home. You're not going to get any today." That was Idell, and I said, oh, "Hang on." I said, "Listen, to this song. I think it's a good little." Song. It was one of four songs that John Burles gave us. It was written by a guy called Frank McNulty, who's now 93. I think I saw him in Chicago uh, a year or two back. He's still writing songs and so forth. And it was his demo that I heard. And so uh, I sang, bye, 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 baby, goodbye. I got to get going, bye, 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 baby, goodbye. And so... Coughing and sneezing. Yeah, coughing and sniffing. Yeah. And so next day I heard from Taylor, he said, That's, we're going to release that song. I said, we'll have to do it again. And he said, now Robert's cut out the sniffs and, and coughs. And I said, well, no, it's got to have a piano on it too. Well, to get a piano up these little skinny sk- stairs at, at festival, it was a pretty rough deal. But there was a little thing in the corner called a, a Celeste. And it belonged to the ABC, and I don't know how it got there, but it was there. It's not, when you listen to Bye Bye Baby, it's not quite in tune to what how we were. But uh, Kevin played the da-da-da-da-da-da-da uh, on the Celeste and so forth. So we were able to run that over the top of it. And, uh, and of course, the rest is history. We recorded it. And we were working a show, well, I think it was the Lloyd Price show in Melbourne um, with Twitty and them, and I, I got a telegram from a bloke called Bob Rogers, who uh, who said, congratulations, bye-bye, baby, number one this week. Well, that, yeah, that, that was, uh, you know, that was different because we'd never known anything like that. Bye-bye, 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 baby, goodbye. I gotta get a gun, bye-bye, bye, baby, goodbye. See you in the morning at the break of day 
just a little kiss and I'll be on my way. Bye 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 baby goodbye. I get so lonely when we're apart. I love you only. Don't you break my heart. Bye 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 my baby goodbye I gotta get a going bye 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 baby goodbye See you in the morning at the break of day Just a little kiss and I'll be on my way Bye 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 baby goodbye So lonely when we're apart. I love you only. Don't you break my heart, my boy, 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 baby, goodbye. I gotta get a going, bye, 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 baby, goodbye. I'll see you in the morning at the break of day Just a little kiss and I'll be on my way Bye, 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 baby, goodbye But it was quite funny. We sort of, sort of just accepted it, as I can recall, and rolled on. We think, what are we going to do next? Well, Bye Bye Baby, it, it obviously had a, a bit of international appeal because there's a cover by a German recording artist, Horst Jenkowicz. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Manches Mal, da muss man auseinander gehen. Doch nach jedem Abschied gibt's ein Wiedersehen. Bye, 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 baby, boo. Have you heard that version? There is 385 versions of it. Wow. Um, Of course, Taylor sent ours to America to be released on Coral Records. And uh, Coral also had a subsidiary company, another little company. And they gave it to a girl called um, Teresa Brewer. So Teresa recorded Bye Bye Baby. Okay. And so she made the charts with us underneath it. Uh, had Cold Joy and the Joy Boys from this other funny little uh, company. But Teresa's um, version was pretty much up-tempo. Ours was sort of lazy, laid-back and so forth, and it, so Teresa's didn't do any great shakes, but it did make we did make the top 100, and not for any great length of time. And um, so that was the end of, uh, of uh, Bye Bye Baby for us. But as I said, uh, it was uh, the writer advised me 385 copies that is is the biggest thing i ever had and i said well frank i thank you for it anyway he said no i thank you and i said okay i'll accept that and go write me another one well he came up with a song called moonlit night that did okay for us and also gonna leave tomorrow um which is a Another one that uh, I don't know if it, I I never checked to see what they what they did chart wise or anything like that. We just just did it and went on look for something else and uh, 
that's how I've been. I haven't been, uh, I've never given it 100%. Well, three months after Bye Bye Baby, you're riding high on the charts, number one, as we said. Your next release comes in September 1959, another classic of Australian rock and roll. It's a reworking of the traditional song, Oh My Darling Clementine. And again, you reach number one on the charts with Rock and Roll and Clementine. What a song. Well, I didn't want to record that. Taylor called us in and said, I've got this new song for you. Now, when I think back, what he used to do is take old clay, old songs, get you to rework them, and he'd take the publishing, the writer's royalties. And we didn't know about that then. You know, we did. Yes. So he said, I've got a new song for you. And he's saying, oh, my darling, oh, in, in the cabin, crazy cabin, let's go ready for a mine. And Robert Einar was in there and said, oh, oh, let that be a lesson to you. He said, get out, get out. He ordered Wydale out of the room. And I said, well, I'm not singing that. And I said, for a start, it's a waltz, because it was. And, and he said, you, you'll record what I tell you. I said, oh, no, I won't. So I walked out, and that was it. And I never talked to them then for some time. And we were at our rehearsal place at Griff's Hall in Kingsford. And Kevin said, look, we better do something to try and please him. And he said, I've got an idea of a fat Domino kind of way that he'd have done this. So he did the music, and we recorded it. And Taylor, of course, has shot it straight overseas, and it didn't work. And when and, and I was riding a plane with Conway Twitty, and... Uh, and I said that um, only make believe good record for you. He said, "Yeah, it took me seven minutes to write that song." He said, uh, "Made me three hundred and fifty-seven thousand dollars." And he said, "But it didn't have no front on it." He said, "When we got in the studio, it didn't work." He said, "So I, I thought uh, people see us everywhere. They think you really care, but myself I can't conceive. I know it's only make believe." Da 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 da. So. Clementine was like that. It just started in the cabin, like hitting you on the head with a, a bat, and starting in. So I sat down and I thought, I wonder if something on the front of this would work. So I, I recorded an album which had Whispering Pines on. So I thought, Down Among the Whispering Pines, what rhymes with that? Because I was never a good songwriter. And the honeysuckle vines, there's a very peaceful scene, and that is where it all begins. Down among the whispering pines And the honeysuckle vines There's a very peaceful scene And that is where it all begins In a cabin, crazy cabin Oh, daddy, drag it rich 
So we recorded that bit and cut it on the front of Clementine, which made the song because otherwise it was just like bang, hits you and between the eyes and runs on and didn't work. But that one of Conway Twitty's idea. And on that particular trip, I said, well, go write me a song. <laughs> Conway, he said, I'm writing one now. He said, I, th- I think it'll suit you. He says, it's called Bad Man. He said, I'll go back and finish it off and I'll send it to you. The cowboy stood and faced me. His hands hung at his hips. A look of hate was in his eyes. A smile had left his lips. He said, young man, slap leather. I'm known for miles around. To keep my reputation up, I've got to gun you down. With lightning speed, we flew and fired one life to be the cost. The cowboy crumbled to the floor, his reputation lost. Now many years have come and gone, and many men have died. Each tried his luck and hoped he'd be the fastest gun alive. And in my many fights to live, I wonder if I've won. I'm known to all as bad men, they say I kill for fun. One day I'll meet a cowboy whose speed will meet the test, and that will end the saga of the bad man of the And we cut that as a demo in Festival Studios. Then we went out on tour and we came back and Taylor released it. And uh, he, he did what he wanted to do. And the same thing happened with another song called Today's Teardrops, in which uh, I heard the version by Roy Orbison. And I wanted to change it around a bit. And the new machine was sent across to me called an Echolette. And it was 800 quid. And I thought, 800 quid? I can't, you know, we can't rationalise that. And they said, well, just try it out. Well, we tried it out on the demo. And um, when you get to play the record again, you'll hear the echoes slashing around everywhere. And you, you hear me in the background going, do waka do waka do waka do wa. Now, that was all for the, that's what the, the backing vocals were supposed to do. He just let it go as it was. But it became a good record for us.
And the Joy Boys are in fantastic form on that on uh, that that song. It's again, the Joy Boys were a, an amazing band for their time, and we'll get to some of their songs a little bit later. But they were often um, they they weren't given their due of of how great musicians they actually were. I'm glad you said that because pound for pound, there was no better band. They they were a great show band. They were a great backing group. And everything that we did, even in, as I said, with, with the, today's teardrops, I'd sing it through and then we'd just play with it a bit and then we'd do it. And um, they had the first actual album, full instrumental album. Now, Bill Haley used to have his Comets and they'd do two or three tracks on, on his album. But no, nobody did a full instrumental track, uh, uh, instrumental album of rock and roll. But the Joy Boys did that and they had their own hits. And they, no, they were better than good. They were a great group, yeah. You're again booked for the uh, Lee Gordon Big Show, and this time it's the Battle of the Big Beat Tour. The premise of the tour was pitting the top American stars against the leading Australian acts of the day, Aussies vs. the Yanks, and it's a bit of a musical showdown, Battle of the Bands, I suppose they call it these days. The Americans were Lloyd Price, Conway Twitty, the Kalen Twins, and Linda Laurie. The Aussies were the cream of Australian music. Johnny O'Keefe and the DJs, Cole joined the Joy Boys, Dig Richards and the RJs, the Deltones, and even a Kiwi ring-in. Johnny Devlin and the Devils. How did you guys find this tour? Well, it wasn't fair to say it was Battle of the Big Bands because Lloyd Price had had a lot of hits and he was strong. Conway Twitty had, had hits. Uh, Linda Laurie only had uh, Just Keep Walking or whatever it was. The Kalen Twins, Herbie and Hal, they had a song called When and then they had another one after that. And uh, I remember they used to play two sticks called Clave. When when you smile, and they were just nice, nice boys. They'd suddenly had a hit, and they were thrust on stage. They didn't have any, anything going from them. I think they maybe tried to be a copy of the uh, Everlys, actually. But so we went on and did a bit. It was quite funny that one because O'Keefe wanted to go on last, and we wanted to. My, my management said, "No, we go on last," and. Um, so it come a stalemate. So Lee Gordon suggested, hey, why don't you take a turn about? I said, okay, I'm happy with that. If you're happy with that, yeah, everybody's happy with that. So we went on first the first night. And the second night, John doesn't turn up. He's waiting outside to let that next act finish and he's going to go on last. So that's all right. So we, he had a hold up, he said. So the next night, we went on first again. And then he don't show up at all. Very late again, and so forth. So we, and uh, so the third one, we said to Lee Gordon, "No, we're not, we're not going on like this. We're not falling for this yeah, trick." Yeah, and so he said, "You go on, because now they're they're waiting for somebody to come on. You go on, and he won't go on at all." Anyway, we said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah." So we went on. We did our bit. Well, when John came in, Lee locked him in the room. Well, he kicked the door, he swore, he cursed, he called him for everything, but he didn't go on that time. 
So that was a kind of a giggle after many years when we got together with John. And he and learned his lesson after that. He yeah, came. he learned his yeah. lesson. He did what we, if it was turned about. But we very seldom worked shows together then, anyhow. Um, that was only a once because the Battle of the Big Beat and, uh, as you say, the Delis and, uh, and O'Keefe and us, we were a pretty formidable gr- uh, lot at that time because we all had our own hit records. But th- that's when we... Uh, that's when I got Bad Man from Twitty and I learned about the intro for Clementine. So it wasn't all bad either. Yeah. Well, Lee Gordon again showed how before his time he was. He brought together a film crew and he filmed uh, one of the shows at the Sydney Stadium. His idea was to film the concert and show it live in cinemas across Australia. Fantastic idea. The only, the only unfortunate thing was he never got the permission of the American Stars Acts. And once the, uh, the managers of these Americans found out, they put a kibosh on their stars being in this film. And he, uh, he then decided, well, hang on, I, I can't put the Americans on, but I've still got this great Australian footage. So he re-edited it and he, uh, he, he put the, together this, this uh, show of the stadium. It was broadcast in cinemas, and sadly, there is no existence of this film today. Did you ever ever see this concert live on a, on a cinema screen? It's all gone. No, but that was a Fabian show, actually. Oh, was it okay? Yeah, yep. Fabian Forte, Fa- Fabian, and uh, Fabian was supposed to be the the um, schoolboy that um, it was funny. He's supposed to be the young, handsome schoolboy. He's still working in America, you know, Fabian. But uh, when I saw him, he he had about two days shave and he hadn't shaved for two days. Well, you schoolboys grow up quickly. <laughs> and he, he, so part of the bit was he had to carry around with him a school teacher. You know, it was all scam, sham and so forth. And he had this thing, turn me loose and uh, I'm a tiger. But he was a good looking boy and of course he, he drew people. But uh, of course when they pulled out of the movie, but no, that all got lost, all that footage. But um, John went on and did his thing again for Shout. He redid that. So if you look at the uh, footage that they use of that, they cut that again later on with the delis and him, but you never see the audience. It, uh, you see a cutaway to the audience, but the rest of it was just um, he, he did that. It was a clever move. He had some, he had some good thoughts, O'Keefe. Yeah, he had some good thoughts and uh, some good ideas. And uh, he'd do anything to stay on top of what he did. And, uh, and and he did it well. Well, I mentioned before about the, the demo disc that you guys found, Bye Bye Baby. In in that pile was also another song, Oh Yeah, Aha. Again, a fantastic song, and it takes you to number one again. It's your third num- straight number one single. But what really makes the uh, this song different to, to any other song that I know of, apart from it being a great tune, this song is noteworthy for drummer John Bogie ditching the drum kit and playing the typewriter to give the song its distinctive sound. Well, that once more was Robert Iredale's idea. We played it first. Uh, the demo that I got was a husband and wife team, and they'd used electric guitars and so forth on it. And I thought it should have been a bit softer than that. So I had this big Gibson guitar, so I got Dave Bridges to play that. Then uh, my brother... Uh, there was a piano in there. I don't know how the piano got up there, but it was left over from somebody, and he played in unison with that. And uh, But it was still too heavy on the, the drums. We couldn't get it. So we tried as a rim shot on the drums to try and soften it, but it didn't do it. And Robert Iredale said, I can hear something sort of clicking in there like a typewriter. 
Well, this once again was on a Saturday, never, nobody in the building, but the walls didn't go, the divisions didn't go right up the roof. So we legged Bogey over one of the walls and he got out this Remington typewriter and he uh, set her up and he, so, and he go clickety, click, click, click. And so he played it all the way through. The trouble with the typewriter, when the carriage moves across the end, it rings a bell. And he goes, ding, and we're getting all the dings in the wrong place. So uh, he put it against the wall so it didn't go anywhere. And we cut a big hole in the roller, but we, after three or four takes, we did the, oh, yeah, uh-huh, and it was a good record for us. Well, Festival got a number one hit out of it, so I'm sure they were able to afford to, uh, to pay for a new extra couple of typewriters I would think so. Next release, again, you had some chart success, Teenage Baby. I say this tongue-in-cheek, but it must have been a bit of a shock to only reach a lowly level of number 10 on the charts after three number ones in a row. Well, I didn't like the song any. Very seldom did I do a song that I didn't like. And this one was written, I think, by, um, who, who wrote it? Uh, Johnny Ascroft, I think, wrote that, Teenage Baby. And also there was a disc jockey on air called Tony Withers. And Tony was pretty strong, and uh, he played Saturday nights, and if he played it, you had a good chance of making a hit. So what they'd done is they gave him half the royalties for the writer's royalties. So he played it, but the song didn't deserve to go to number 10. <laughs> it should have been 110. But, um, but we recorded it, and as I said, you know, I guess if I had a number 10 record today, I'd be quite happy with that. <laughs> I like 
to see your style I love the way you walk A teenage baby I love you so I love you baby Oh please don't ever go so as well as playing the major cities on the on the Lee Gordon shows, you also do a lot of regional tours, and uh, these these are run by two men that would would play a big part in your life, Al Heffernan and Max Moore. With these guys, you, you play a lot of the regional centres from Bendigo to Rockhampton and every city in between. You'd play the major cities of, of the major regional towns, but you would also play the little uh, fly spec towns on on the map population of these towns would be like 2,000 people and you guys would turn up into town first time they've ever heard rock and roll of a a population of 2,000 people 1,500 people would turn up to your show it was just an amazing time of rock and roll you know coming to the masses do you have any defense on uh, bringing the corruption of the devil's music to the the whole population of Australia Yeah, well, we did get that, but uh, we did get that, but not a great deal. Not so much as we as they got in America. And plus, uh, these little um, the little towns that we played. Sometimes you, because you were going from A to B, and it was a long drive, so you'd you you're in the middle, you'd play A plus, A plus two, and but also it gave them an opportunity to see their own stars, their own people that they heard about or read about or saw them on the television if they had television in those places. And they were some of your best shows. They some, we played in igloos and I remember one night our spotlight blew, the bulb blew, and they said, oh, don't worry, we'll get a spotlight. <laughs> and I walked on the stage and got a spotlight. It was a kangaroo spotlight. <laughs> One of the was, if anybody's going to get shot the night, it's me. <laughs> uh, other places we had to go and uh, we'd go to the local school to get their chairs. And um, I remember Richmond in Queensland, we went and bought two pound of nails because we had to repair after chairs to make them go. But they were, yes, those little towns that we played. And plus, more so than whereas the Slim Dusties and the Tex Mortons and all that would play the little whistle stops. Um, if there was a town hall, they'd play it. Sometimes they'd, they'd play a tent or anything. They'd play anywhere. And if there was only 50 people in the town, they'd play it. And they're liable to get 100 there anyway because they were kind of thirsty for music anyhow as to what was happening. But um, those small towns were were certainly good to us and uh, you'd sell a lot of product too out of those places. Um, In those towns, people bought records. We never made 78s. O'Keefe made a 78, but we never... Our first one was a 45. Um, So it did bring a lot of uh, pleasure, I would say, to those places. And it certainly stood in good stead for us because Max Moore wouldn't give you a night off without working. He'd, he'd put something in there. But when we worked Queensland, we'd play two or three clubs on the way to Queensland. Then we'd hire our own train. And uh, it was really quite unique, actually, because it can never be done again. And, uh, and nobody had ever done it. They'd Slim and them used to pull away, pull a caravan around and they'd stay in caravan parks and all that. Um, we'd stay only in hotels because there was very few motels then and the hotels were pretty rugged. The, the, the bed, they used to have a thing called a ticken, and, uh, <laughs> which was the mattress. And you'd seen they'd, they'd had a thousand struggles because no matter where you laid, <laughs> it ended up in the middle. And then, of course, when, when um, 
uh, motels come in and made a lot of difference. But once again, we travelled with a, a utility and a, and a car and, a, and something else that would pull a trailer. And that was it. And then later on, of course, we got a combi bus and, and uh, thought we were terribly flash. Well, apparently you guys gave Max the uh, the nickname Madney Max. All all it had to be was six people standing on a corner, and he put on a matinee show. Yeah, yeah matinee Max. We used to call him Maxi Two Pies too. Uh, Maxi Two Pies, because if you're lucky, you got two pies for dinner. And Max also used to say, "Okay, the bank's open, so you'd all run in to get your, get a draw, so you could <laughs> buy buy a beer or something." And they said that was it. Bank's shut. And that was it. You never got, he wouldn't open that bag again for anybody. So Maxie and his banking, yeah. But they, they were quite, uh, they were quite incredible times, actually. A lot of fun. And, uh, and it's just sad, I think, that it's all changed now that when the uh, big stars suddenly got bigger and now you have the uh, Elton Johns and, the, and those calibers, Billy Joels and Bruce Springsteens and so forth, that get huge amounts of money, and they don't get to do all those things that we had to do. Although some of them grew up through that. Uh, Johnny Denver and that, who was a lovely person, they used to set up their own sound system and do the shows, as did Springsteen early in the piece. You mentioned chairs before, and highlighting the time period and the DIY nature of getting in and having a go. Your schedule had you playing at a concert at Queanbeyan. For some reason, the chairs ordered for this hall didn't arrive, and Alan and Max are in some trouble. In sheer desperation, Alan gets onto the local radio disc jockeys and broadcast out on the airwaves that anybody attending the concert tonight needs to bring their own chair. So the DJs help out. Amazingly, the night is a huge success, with a 1,000 people turning up and enthusiastically enjoying the concert with the majority seated on their own chair that they'd bought to the hall themselves. Surely this has got to be a first in rock and roll history as well. Oh, probably, but I remember one night in Ningen, Max Moore, who was the, uh, uh, and just getting back, Max used to work for Lee Gordon, and when Lee Gordon fell on hard times, Max rang us and said, uh, I need a job, I've got two kids, and I've, uh, I've three kids, and, and uh, what do you do? You go, and we said, well, okay, yeah, fine, coming up, we'll find something. So that's when we started touring with Max doing them. Okay. But one stage in Ningen, he sa- he allowed people in to sit on one another's laps in the front row because row, there was no more and all these people were crowded outside. They wanted to get in no matter what. We had them standing around the walls and in the aisles and, of course, the fire brigade had come and said, you can't sit in the aisles, you can't do that and you can't do this. Then I remember, yeah, he sold that room, a lap room. <laughs> yeah, Maxie, he, he ran it good. Honest as day as long and uh, a lot of lot of great times from Maxie Moore. Well, he got you a good one one time up in Mackay. Uh, your, uh, one of your little tricks before, one of, one of the things you used to do before your show went on is the support band would be playing and to get a sound level and a good check, you'd go outside and you'd stand there listening to listening to how the sound came across and if needed to come up or come down or whatever. And uh, so you're standing outside in the darkness and, and one of the Mackay policemen spots you and uh, thinks, who's this guy lurking in the darkness? So he, uh, he yeah, tells you I was leaning you against the wall, had my ear against the wall listening. <laughs> what are you doing? And he was going to arrest me. He took me around the front and, and I said, well, we'll go around. And, of course, Max Moore was in the box office. And the cop said, do you know this bloke? And Max said, no, should I? <laughs> I said, you mongrel, Max. <laughs> then we started to laugh and, of course, it gave the game away. Yeah, Maxie Moore. 
we were playing Townsville. We went to Tully first, and all the bikies were in town. And they used to drive their bikes along the side of the Tully Theatre, which was corrugated iron, and they'd have a stick and it'd go brrrr, brrrr, and we'd be in there trying to sing songs. And Max went out and said, now you blokes, if you don't get out, I'm going to cause you, I'll call the police. Well, that was, I mean, only two police in the town and they didn't want to go and tackle 44 bikies. And the next night they were, uh, oh no, two nights later, and they said, uh, the bikies are going to come and cause us and angst at the show. I said, oh yeah, where do they drink? And they said, oh, they drink at the White Horse down the road there. And I said, oh. So I went, wandered down there and of course they're all in this, they allowed them one room of the hotel that they could all get in and, and drink. They wouldn't allow, allow them in the other bar and that with the locals. I went in and said, uh, you caused a bit of trouble in Tully. Yeah, 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 that was caused a bit of trouble. And uh, we're coming to the show though tonight. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. I said, who's your best rider? And they said, oh, he was curly until he fell off and chopped his leg off. And, oh, he was good here till he married her. And, that, and I said, oh. So I said, well, okay, wait here. And I, we had a little motorbike. We used to call it the Greeny bike. I, um, because Greenbottle used to have a, a thing on the radio, Mr. Pim and Greenbottle. And Greeny used to talk about his father on his motorbike. So we had this little 50cc step through Yamaha, a postage bike. And we used to be able to load that on the back of our truck, on the back of our um, train. We'd run it up the side uh, uh, onto the platform and drive it on. Sometimes, of course, they'd leave you in the rail yards. There was no nothing to drive it on from. And Max used to get on the back of that and I used to drive him up there. So he'd have his bag of goodies and I'd go up and drop him at the at the theatre and I'd come back and... And Sandy Scott was funny on the back of that. He was like a, a triantle ape spider. <laughs> His legs were so long, he could run along with us. One night, Max and I were drinking in Gladstone. We'd had a, a good night, so we'd had a few to drink. And we went back and decided we now we've got the greeny bike and we've got to put it up onto the back of the, the train. And I found this old bamboo ladder. And I said, you hold it, Max, and I'll drive it up. Well, I got halfway up and, of course, it broke and I fell back on top of Max. And he said, oh, it's burning my leg, it's burning my leg. I said, oh. And we couldn't get it off us. Only Keith came, my brother came down out and <laughs> pulled it off us. We were both underneath the bike, the greeny bike. So these are all part of our, our travelling things that I'm sure that Springsteen and them never <laughs> had to do. Well, you're releasing, you're releasing singles and, and EPs along this time and and one of the EPs that you release is uh, Cold Joy Sings Gene Vincent, featuring, as the name suggests, your re- rendition of four Gene Vincent and the Blue Cap covers, Bebop Alula, Rocky Road Blues, Say Mama, and my favourite song on this EP is Dance to the Bop. Well, there's a little juke joint on the outside of town Where the cats pick them up and they lay them down You go and get your girl, I go and get mine And when we get together, we'll have a good time We'll dance a little bit to the bop, the bop Dance a little bit to the bop We'll dance a little bit to the bop We'll dance to the rock and roll Well, then dance, dance, stand here Now dance, dance, stand Oh, now dance, dance, dance You gotta dance Oh, let's dance, dance to the rock and roll, rock it out now. 
lads come rocking in two by two And some come a single like me and you And dancing to the pop is their delight And when they get together they'll dance all night They'll dance a little bit to the pop, to the pop Dance a little bit to the pop They'll dance a little bit to the pop They'll dance to the rock and roll Well now dance, 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 yeah They'll dance a little bit to the bar. They'll dance a little bit to the bar. They'll dance to the rock and roll. Well, now dance, 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 now dance, 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 go. a lot of good songs Gene Vincent um, we worked with him on a couple of different shows so we're always been a fan of his mainly of the things we did a little bit different to Gene uh, only because we didn't know any better we just learnt the song and then we'd go in the studio and record it and what got out of it is what happened um, and Bebop Alula is a uh, as a walk up start for that because it's altogether different to uh, to Gene's that he did with a, um, a slap bass She's the queen of all the teens. She's the woman that I know. She's the woman that loves me so. Sing, be Bapalulu, she's my baby. Be Lula, I don't need a maybe. Be Bapalulu, she's my baby now, my baby now, my baby now. She's a woman with the flying feet She's a woman walks around the store She's a woman gives me more, 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 more Be-bop-a-loo-loo, she's my baby be Well, magazines specifically for teenagers were all the rage of the day. There was publications with titles such as Teen Beat, Music Maker, Teenager Weekly, and you regularly grace the covers of these magazines. You must have had a few times where you pass the news agents and you've seen yourself staring back at yourself from the newsstand. Oh yeah, that was always that was always a bit of a kick, but generally they'd they'd touched it up so much you'd have like rouge or paint or something on you and they'd 
of fixture hair and all that kind of thing. But um, any any anything was, you know, part and parcel of the industry. If you saw it, you know, you thought it was good. But that, once again, we never thought ourselves as stars. We just rolled on with the flow and it was there and it was part and parcel of what we did. That's what my parents said. You do it as good as you can and... And uh, you know better or worse than anybody else that's do it. I mean, you'd, you'd be a star on bandstand on Saturday night and help deliver the furniture on Monday morning for your father at the shop. Well, yeah, that's a story that is, is about you in the industry is you're one of the biggest stars. you got hit records and then you jump on the truck on Monday morning and start delivering <laughs> furniture for your dad if it was needed. Yeah, because my father, even though he was proud of us and so forth, and uh, as he was of his son-in-law, Sandy Scott, and his daughter-in-law at the stage was little Patty. Um, if she called past to see Keith, my brother, whom she married, and they're no longer together, but they still talk quite a lot, um, uh, he'd give her a bunch of shavings to put in the boot of a car and say, drop these off down at the tip, sweetie. It's how everybody worked for my father. But um, there was no, in among our clans, there was no big heads. You didn't get a chance to think I'm... I'm better than thee or thou better than me or something or other. And uh, so when I think back, it was a pretty interesting time. We worked with a few Americans who thought they were hierarchy, but they, they didn't last very long as hierarchy working with the Joy Boys. They'd, uh, and most of, the southerners, most of the southerners we got on pretty well with. The northerners we thought first up, they were a bit quick for us. You know, give me a Coke. There was no, can I get a Coke, please, or anything like that. And you'd go up to the counter, and by the time that you'd, you'd say, may I have a Coke, please, they'd say, give me a Coke, and they got a Coke, and you're down the line a bit. But um, we, we they, the Joy Boys were so far ahead of their time, they sorted them out very quickly. Fashion-wise, again, you were ahead of the curve. Uh, the description of your appearance at the Jazzarama had you decked out in white and orange. Y- your shirt is a, a white and orange cowboy shirt, green pants, blue neckerchief, and you even painted your white your boots white. Once you hit stardom, you continued the fashion trend. You'd have specific uh, fabric imported for your suits, and they were made by uh, a t- one of the bigger tailors of the time, Andy Ellis. You always looked a million bucks, but it must have taken a hell of a lot of brill cream to keep your hair in place. Well, I didn't use brill cream. I used spruce, which was different, which was all right, except you had trouble keeping your head on the pillar of a night. It would slide off. But getting back to that first show, that shirt that I wore was handmade by my sister-in-law. And my shoes were things called brogues at the time. They had sort of all little holes around them. And they were brown. And O'Keefe had real white shoes. So... We figured I got to have white shoes, so we had a, we just got the a can of paint, and we'd paint it, and all these little holes, we'd just stab the the, the paintbrush in to fill them up, <laughs> and you'd wear them on stage. But you saw a crack across the front where you if you'd worked on your toes at all, so you just give them a touch up and <laughs> wait for the next show. So that was the that was the Jazzarama thing, and. Later on, I never did get onto white, into white boots at all. But we always kept up pretty much with the fashions. Yes, we did, um, because there were things like drape coats, which come out of the jive era anyhow, and um, um, which were come on with little Richard used to wear those and, and all those, the, the, the hip people over there. So what we get was a photo, and you just work off the photo. Some of those suits, they were 
they were a bit out. We had the biggest shoulders in the world. <laughs> and uh, you'd buy all these special lengths of, of cloth, yes. That uh, And uh, I had a, a good contact in there with a young lady that would ring me and say, we've got in this new uh, whatever it may be. So I'd get down there first and, and buy it all up. So we had it. I could make a set of suits for the Joy Boys. One, two we were on, we used to carry a six by four trailer. We used to have it because in those days there was no big bus. The Yanks used to travel in, even though their buses that they travelled in, like with uh, Richie Valens and all them, they were just an old bus. They weren't air-conditioned or anything. That's why Richie and them got off the bus to catch the plane. It was so cold on the bus. But us, we had a 6 by 4 trailer that we'd pull along behind, behind one of the cars and we'd pack everything on there, the drums in there, what we couldn't fit in the station wagon. And one night, and we'd lay our suits on top of that, because that would save them crushing up and so forth. So they'd be the last thing to go on. <laughs> One day we pulled up at the place, the next place we're playing, that afternoon our suits are gone. They're gone off there. <laughs> and we never did find them. I said to Jimmy Little, I said, Jimmy, Jimmy was on the tour. I said, Jimmy, you better get down there and send some smoke signals. I said, because somebody out there, there's a corroboree on and they're wearing our suits. <laughs> We look like going on in a lap lap. <laughs> and Jimmy threatened me with a white eye. He said, I'll give you a white eye. It's not a black eye. I'll give you a white eye. Yeah, so uh, I remember we lost all our suits on that. Um, so from then on, we were wearing uh, street clothes until we got back and got to Andy Alice again. And But we never, they never did show up. <laughs> <laughs> Someone was looking flash, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, somebody was looking flash. The next single you guys release is another classic, and I'm sure it's a favourite amongst the fans. Yes, sir, that's my baby. Yes, sir, she's my baby. No, sir, I don't need maybe. Yes, sir, she's my baby now. Ooh, yes, sir, we've decided. No, sir, we won't hide it. Yes, sir, you're invited now Bye, by the way Bye, by the way Now when we meet that preacher I say mm, Yes, sir, oh, she's my baby No, sir, I don't need maybe Yes, sir, oh, she's my baby How did you come to record that song? We were in Perth. We played, we were doing it, we were going to do a show in Perth. Uh, we were going to do a tour in Perth, actually. 
And Lee Gordon said, i got a big show coming out, and if uh, you come over there early, I'll play your airfares, and you got to back the show. So we said, oh, a week before or something. Maybe it was two weeks, but I think it was a week. It was Marv Johnson and Crash Craddock and all the Everly brothers were on that show. So we went across to Perth and we did this show. And then we had to lay around for a week or two before we started our tour. But now we've got, we've got accommodation things. So there was a fellow I remember called Rosenthal. He had a big jewellery shop in there. And he said, I've got a hotel out of, I can't think of the name of the place, Myrtle Bank or something. He said, you can stay there for a week or two weeks and you have to do a show for me. We said, okay, good idea. Suddenly we're home free. So in he, he had a, a room there, and it had a stage, and you'd, it'd seat a couple hundred people. But the stage had what they called a rake. In the old days, where there was no amplification or anything like that on stage, they'd have the stage would be raked, so it would be a bit lower in the front than it was at the back. And um, so you could see everybody on stage from where you're sitting, and so he had a rake on the stage. So he had this old piano there, and we were... We were running through some songs one afternoon and my brother Kevin was sitting at the piano and he said, I've got a good idea for a song. And he said, yes, sir, that's my baby. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. That's When my brother, Keith, younger brother Keith played bass, he came down and he said, yeah, and he leaned on the piano. Well, the piano took off down the rake and my elder brother Kevin was sitting on the piano stool and away went the piano, down, down, off the front of the stage. We all ran after it, but we couldn't stop it. Well, I don't know if you've heard a piano fall about six feet into the front row. No. But it was quite a sound and quite a lot of pieces. And there were some chairs gone and bits of piano laying everywhere. That's where how Yes, So That's My Baby was born. So when we came home, we came back. Uh, we said to Lynchy, that piano you've got's no good. <laughs> and he said, oh, it's pretty old. He said, but it tunes up. Well, it never did tune up when he saw it. So he got another piano, he, he did fine. And um, when we came back, we recorded Yes, So That's My Baby. But I had an idea in my head of how it should have been done and how it should have been sung. And that's all we had was gut feel. So we, we did the backing on my um, roller recording, roller recorder, but I couldn't sort of get the feel of how I thought it should have been done. We had this dance at Bronte that we used to do for the surf club. And there was a girl, and I remember her name was Barbara O'Keefe, very pretty girl. And she was in standing there, and the, the stage there was only probably what, one foot high or something. It wasn't much of a stage there. And, of course, all the kids would stand around the front, and she was there. And I sung it to her. I saw it. She was such a pretty girl. And I thought, oh, that's the way it's got to go. And I said, well, what are you doing after the show and after the stage? She said, I'm going home. I said, could you come to the studio? She said, no, I couldn't. My mother had killed me. <laughs> I said, what about tomorrow? She said, I go to work. I said, I'll pick you up. I picked her up at five o'clock and I sat her in the corner and I sang it through once and I sang it through twice and that was it. And uh, it was a good record for us. Um, Ronnie Patton played saxophone on that. It was a sad time for Lonnie Lee at that stage because he had a big hit called I Found You Love. And of course, Yes Sir, That's My Baby went straight to the top and held everything out for some weeks. And I think I Found You Love laid around at two, just never snuck into that first hole um, because of Yes Sir, That's My Baby. But still, I, uh, I bear ourselves no ill will. <laughs> and when we, and when we were, then we did it with uh, Ricky Nelson. But after the Ricky Nelson, we did that show. Oh, we were going to release it then. And, um, and Lee asked us, would we hold up? Um, and, but we asked Rick, could we sing it? And of course, it went down great. 
And then there was a fellow called Dick Caruso on his next show coming up, and he said, no, hold that up a bit further. Ah, I tell a fib. I get it round the wrong way. We held it up first for Dick Caruso, because Lee, Lee has booked Dick Caruso. He said it's the only song that he's got that looked like doing any good. So we held that up, and then we released it. And when we released it, it shot up, but Rick also released it. So we got in uh, before his, and it went number one very quickly, and Rick's didn't do anything at all here. And that's when, because uh, Dick Caruso, we held it up for Lee, because that was the only one that he said, hold that record up, because I got nothing else to sell uh, Dick on. And, uh, and Dick Caruso, he passed away about only a few months back, I think, played uh, alto sax and, and sung. And uh, how Lee found him, I don't know, but there we go. But that's how that come about. Yes, sir, that's my baby. We held it up for Dick. We released it. Then out came, uh, and Lee asked, we hold it again? No, too late. It's out. Went number one. Rick recorded it, and we asked him, could we sing it? Uh, rest is history. But it was a, certainly a good record for us. And uh, But going back, Oh Yeah, Aha uh-huh was our biggest selling record at that stage. Okay. Um, and uh, And hung out there until... Heaven is more woman's love, which overtook it in sales. And that was a few years back too. So you never know what's going to happen around the corner. You don't. Do. I still think there's one more left in me. I think there is too, Carl. Well, the major part of the Cold Joy story is is you were, you were the biggest star of the mega TV show Bandstand. It's hosted by Brian Henderson, and this show was as popular as any music show ever broadcast in Australia. We're talking about Countdown. Australian Idol, Rage, any of these shows, Bandstand was was as big. Six O'clock Rock was a, a bit of a bit of a rough, rough and ready type show, yeah. but Bandstand, Bandstand was very smooth, very slick, and it, Bandstand must hold a special place in your heart. It certainly does. It gave a launching pad for so many people, even internationally. The Helen Reddies, the Peter Allens, the Olivia Newton-Johns. Although Olivia didn't play a lot of bandstands. She used to play a few eight, six o'clock rocks. But the bandstand certainly didn't do her any harm. And uh, so a lot of these artists, um, Lana Cantrell and all those people got their their lift off from that. But as did Cole Joy, Little Patty, Sandy Scott, Judy Stone, they all, um, um, that was also a great platform not just for us, but for a whole lot of other artists, the Lucky Stars and the Warren Williams and the Nolene Batleys, they all came along um, that got a leg up because of Bandstand, which ran for 14 and a half years. They tried to do it later on with Daryl Summers, but it didn't work. It was in colour then, by then, which made a lot of difference as well. But it was certainly... And Brian Henderson held it together. But Bandstand was special because Bandstand went outside the realms of of Dick Clark's bandstand in America. And Lee Gordon had been to America and, uh, um, oh, not Lee Gordon, uh, Bruce Gingell had been to America who ran Channel 9 and he saw this Dick Clark thing. We had a show running here called Accent on Youth by with John Godson and uh, uh, Bruce Gingell come back and Brian Henderson was a, a booth announcer and he said, um, I'd like you to do this bandstand, so which was all mimed artists come on and mime their record but Warwick Freeman who was a producer at the time took it outside of that and he did shows from um, he did songs from big shows and so forth we did outdoor broadcasts that the Yanks wouldn't go near try and do so Bandstand was a kind of launching pad and, and a major part of Australian musical history 
Well, you mentioned the outside broadcast and there's a fantastic clip on YouTube with the Joy Boys doing a live concert out on the, on, virtually on the sand at Avalon. The surf's pumping in the background, the wind's howling. Oh, yeah, that was something, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, certainly was. See, the Yanks would never have tried anything like that. And, and our, our equipment was pretty basic. I mean, you got what you got. Well, the funny thing of this clip is the microphone's basically falling down on you all the time and you're trying to stand it back up. And uh, the crowd was bopping away. They were doing the stomp and it was uh, looked like a, a great day anyway. Oh, it was. I remember that microphone. It was a... Oh, it was a Philips microphone. It came out new and had what we call a gooseneck on it. So it was good for me because you could stand a bit further off the mic, or off the mic stand. By then, I'd buy. I'd, I had a better amplifier. You weren't getting electric shocks. And I wasn't getting me, and I had a better guitar. But um, yeah, I wasn't getting the uh, the bashing that I used to get from the, <laughs> where it stand my hair on end. But those things out. out doors um, that bandstand did uh, i think the first video clip that i'd ever seen on bandstand was oh yeah uh-huh which was me running uh, um after i had a station wagon and the, the uh, cameraman was a bloke called stefan Sargent, and he sat on the back tray and i ran through and then we hit a dust patch and i disappear and i come back and through <laughs> but that was oh yeah uh-huh, me miming running along behind it but Stefan Sargent, uh, who was a cameraman at Channel 9, he cut our first record at, in uh, a place called Hosking's Place down there um, in the city at a, a place owned by 2UE. And it cost us £60 to do this record, which was, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes and I miss you so. And it, they'd only cut it onto a, um, an acetate, onto a lacquer. And that was our first record. And uh, I remember, it was right near Martin Place. And I remember the the boss of the place, I walked around the corner and I heard him saying to Stefan Sargent, listen, these, these kids think that this rock and roll thing is going to last. Uh, just do the best you can with them. That was our <laughs> first record. So uh, I think, I, I don't know if I ever found it again and sent it to archives, but uh, I took it home and we knew nothing about recording or production or anything like that. And I finally found out later on there's, there's a, a way to play in the studio, there's a way to play on stage and there's a way to play on television and, and another way to play in the recording studio. So we did learn a little bit over the years, but after such a long time, I, I guess we had to learn something. Yeah. Well, you, you're well known for your clean-cut image. However, I believe Coljoy and the Joy Boys are at their best when they're rocking out. One of the most raucous songs I've heard you record is a fantastic song called Going Downtown to See Miss Brown. You guys are verging on rockabilly punk rock on this, out, on this recording. It must have been a great time in the studio laying down this track. Well, that one wasn't done in the studio. Strangely enough, that one was done at the Pennington Police Boys Club. And it was partially, even though I got the kudos of writing it, um, it was partially written by John Bogie, our drummer, who couldn't sing four words in tune in a way, in, anyhow. But he, he said, I'm going downtown to see Miss Brown. Oh, yeah. And I said, well, what else? He said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so I wrote the rest of it while we were doing it. And uh, it was an on-the-spot recording, but it had a good feel to it, didn't it? Well, that's obviously why it has such a great feel, because it's live and the energy that you guys are playing at that moment is what comes out on the record. So that explains the, the great sound to that song. Yeah, we did another one later on. I can't recall it. It doesn't come to mind at the moment, um, which uh, it was a similar kind of thing we try to emulate. But but that, that was a special because, once again, as I said, what you got is what you got. 
and you'd have to move the microphone a bit further away from the drums or and move it away from the amp, the guitar, push it a bit uh, towards the bass because you weren't getting enough of that. And as I said, you had the four microphones and one was out the front with me. So um, it, oh, I don't, it's sad that they won't ever come again, but that, that's, that's history. Yesterday's gone. journalists are always trying to create feuds. A classic example is the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones, Nirvana versus Pearl Jam, Skyhooks versus Sherbet, and of course Michael Jackson versus Prince. The media loved to push the idea that you and Johnny O'Keefe were enemies, despite both yourself and JOK often stating that you guys weren't best mates, but you admired and respected each other's talents. How would you describe your relationship with Johnny? Oh, early in the piece it wasn't good. Uh, and as I said, John was first, and he jealously guarded that position. And uh, and then he, of course, with his bipolar, he had his moments. And I, we didn't start until probably 18 months after John had been going. We weren't fussed on his band. We didn't think they kicked. And us coming along, young upstarts, wherever he could, he'd get in on top of you with 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 the disc jockeys, with any of those, because he'd go and do his interviews and so forth. We never did any of those. We didn't know how to do them, how to get there. But John had an in also with a, a Qantas steward who would bring back all these records from America. And even our radio stations couldn't get them. And so John could pick the eyes out of those. So he had a good ear for a song that would suit him and... 
also, as I said, he jealously guarded his position. So early in the piece, no, we, were, we, we didn't even see one another. Very seldom saw one another. But later on, of course, and as I mentioned earlier, in life, we, uh, when John got on the straight and narrow and um, uh, he took his tablets and we, we had a lot of fun together then and a lot of happy times, a lot of good meals together. But uh, early in the piece, no, we, we just thought we were it and, uh, and we just forged on with what we did. We just thought we, that the Joy Boys kicked and and it lasted us right through. I did a big show with a, with Chuck Berry and little uh, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, a whole bunch of them. And Jerry said to me, "Carl," I said, "Yeah, Jerry Lee." He said, "I want you to fire my band. I want to use your band." And I said, "You're kidding! I'm not going to fire." I said, "Lovelace, he's been with you twenty years or something. You want me to go and say Jerry's fired you?" I said, "You go fire him yourself if you want to." And I said. He said, yeah, but your man, man, your band's kicks ass. Mine, mine don't go like that. And I said, well, of course, you're you. You speed up all the time and you slow down and the drummer goes with you. I said, so, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. But they've always been better than good. Um, but they've always, I've always had good players and I've never gone anywhere without a band. There's always been the Joy Boys. Uh, I finished up um, with a piano player called Larry Mahobrak. Uh, Larry was with Elvis Presley for nine years and a fella called James Burton who used to play, I met with Ricky Nelson when we did our early shows and uh, he told me there was a fella called uh, Larry Mahobrak just moved here and I said, Larry, who's Larry? He said, he's the best piano player in the whole world. So there was people that that even last year when I was in uh, Nashville, they tell me of top artists that used to always bring Larry down to play piano. He worked for Sinatra, he worked for Stries and all that, but he was here and I said, have I got a job for you? I rang him and I said, I'm, I'm touring next week. And he said, uh, well, yeah, okay, I can make that. He was just a lovely person and a great piano player. And the first time, first job I gave him was was a Max Moore special. He put us into Berry Bowling Club, <laughs> okay. which they... Which, uh, <laughs> I'd never seen oh, that was different and I said Larry it does get better than this <laughs> and we had a great affiliation for many many years unfortunately he passed on about 18 months ago and he's, he's a sad loss but um, but the Joy Boys have always been they'd always stand up to any group that I've ever seen or worked with in the world that's the end of episode one of Cold Joy and the Joy Boys thanks very much for listening and episode two should just follow on after this one If you enjoyed the episode, please click subscribe. And if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes, that would be unreal. If you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can email me at mycoast2 at bigpond.com. That's M-Y-C-O-A-S-T, the number two, at bigpond.com. Or like our Facebook page at All Australian Music Stories. I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, hail, hail, Australian rock and roll. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written, produced and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, hit it, girl.